This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, a setback for a new hydrogen-powered airplane. On the other hand, the Bahamas are fixing to open their doors to air travelers. Also, former flight service specialists get their settlement with the FAA. And a popular aviation writer runs afoul of the FAA. Finally, we talk about two new airplanes on opposite ends of the economic spectrum. You're right about that, Ian. Let's do some hangar talk. Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 1324. Turn right, guys. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week is uh, Dorothy Cochran. Now, some of you may have heard her name. We've featured her in the magazine before and online. Dorothy is the GA curator of the National Air and Space Museum. I can't wait to hear what she has to say, Ian. And, you know, we were talking a little bit off show, but she came on board the Smithsonian just about a year after it opened up. We recently had an obit on Michael Collins, the, ast- the astronaut, NASA astronaut, who ushered the facility open. And they had 10 million people the very first year. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, 9.5 million of those kids which, you know, if you've been to the museum downtown, you know, it's like it's overrun with r- screaming, running children everywhere. But one uh, of the best museums ever. I, I cannot yes. wait to hear what she's got to say about it. Yeah. So she's mostly going to talk about she'll talk a bit about her background, but then get into the major refurb that they're doing actually in the downtown museum, kind of what it's going to look like and and how they did. it. And it's really, really pretty fascinating. So looking forward to talking more to her later. Thanks for doing the heavy lifting on that, Ian. And we'll hear yeah. about the museum and the Smithsonian. And it's opening soon. That's the other thing we should we should put a hook in there. It's opening real soon. Yes, that's true. That's true. All right, David, before we get to the news, let's talk about a couple of announcements. The Flight Training Experience Survey is now open. And it's basically reopened in its previous format, Ian. We took a year off for the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, that's when some folks sent in their videos and said what was what was good about their facility or their instructors or their training. But we're turning more to the traditional format where we have folks say what's best about their instructors, their school, uh, and able to highlight individual programs. And the folks will be named again at Redbird Migration in October. So it's sort of back to how we used to do it and recognizing people in the industry. I think that's a cool thing. 
Yeah. So if you're a student or you've been a student recently of an instructor or flight school or both, please, yes, definitely take that because that it, it all goes in to trying to improve the quality of flight instruction across the country. So it's very important. So yes, and, and recognizes those schools that are doing it really well. So take the time to do that. We also want to talk about a couple of surveys that are coming out that we want to make sure that that if you're pinged for, you definitely take the time to fill out. Yeah, Ian, the uh, general aviation survey is, is is out now. So if you're an airplane owner, look in the, the mail, snail mail or a postcard or via email. And it's really important for folks to fill out this you know very general information on aircraft ownership because we use those stats really to figure out where does the money need to go in aviation. We're talking about airspace. We're talking about improvements. We're talking about infrastructure, that kind of thing. And it's not going to get anybody in trouble. This is a really helpful survey. And if you're an airplane owner and you get one, please don't trash it or don't delete it. Go ahead and fill it out. Yeah, that's right. It, it helps inform everything from like safety stats to, like you said, you know, the size of the fleet, you know, which airports are really active, uh, how many people are flying IFR, that sort of thing. So it is very important. The other thing, you know, is is weather. Now, I don't think the GA survey goes much into that, but AOPA for the past couple of years has been doing a weather survey, and that one is coming out soon. I'm going to look forward to getting one of those myself, Ian, because I think that in the past few years, and there's another story we're going to talk about that, that touches on weather, mm-hmm. you know, for our podcast listeners. But for the past few years, I think the improvements have really put us into the next century. Yeah. And it's just incredible. So that's a survey that we want to stay tuned to. And there are great products that are out there that will help usher us through a proper pre-flight briefing with regards to weather. Yes, definitely. So take those. All right. So, hey, let's move on to the news. First thing we want to talk about is is just this really, really sad, unfortunate setback for uh, ZeroAvia, the company that is developing a hydrogen-powered uh, electric aircraft. Now, Ian, if I'm not mistaken, you were one of the first people around to write about their endeavors, and they had a Piper that was outfitted with hydrogen propulsion in some way. Mm -hmm. Can you reach back into your memory banks and explain that to me and the other listeners? Not without my engineering degree. Right Um, on. It's, yeah, it is, it is complicated. Basically the way it works is it's, it's, you know, hybrid hydrogen. So the hydrogen is a fuel cell that powers an electric motor. So that's ultimately what they're trying to get to, you know, a lot of people think of hydrogen, they think flammable, of course, but you know, you're talking about big reinforced tanks and they're going to be under high pressure. And so it, it's, there are a bunch of drawbacks with hydrogen in terms of storage and refueling and, and that sort of thing. But of course, the big benefit is environmental in that there is no environmental impact to, to burning it. So that's, that's obviously why they're going for it. And let me ask this question. And again, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but was this the was this a technology in the company that sort of was looking at the infrastructure of getting the, the hydrogen from place to place using some existing trucks and, and, and pipes and things like that? Or am I confusing two stories? Well, they, they've got a really cool business model in the sense that they, they knew customers were going to be apprehensive about the ground infrastructure. So it's like, you know, they, they knew that just like we talk about with electric, it's like, you know, we're used to fuel trucks and fuel farms and we know how to pump gas. So it's like, you know, we've, we've got that covered. And they knew that that convincing people to take on this new fuel source was going to be challenging. And so they have developed this sort of power by the hour plan where, you know, they're, they're targeting the commercial market. So the idea is that a commercial operator, you know, it's like for every hour they fly, they pay this company full up you know, what for the airframe maintenance, everything else, you know, a, a flat rate. And so they don't have to worry about 
you know, providing the infrastructure and doing the servicing and all that kind of stuff that goes with the new technology, which is, I, I think, pretty smart. And, and in fact, you know, companies are definitely interested, like British Airways, I think, is an investor and some others. So, so yeah, unfortunately, they're, uh, they're M-class bit of a shunt there off airport and, and pretty heavily damaged. Yeah, so that was a M-class Piper that they put their technology in that you wrote about, Ian, and, that, and there was a crash overseas, basically in the United Kingdom about not even a week ago as we record this. And if you look at the pictures and the aftermath, it, it you know doesn't look real good. I, I don't, you know, could be worse. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Nobody was hurt. Right. That's right. Which is yeah. great. That's yep. fantastic. But yes. it did not it did not look good for the test bed aircraft. And I wonder how far that's going to set them back. Yeah. And and they were, I don't know, not maybe not fully honest about what happened, but they did say, oh boy, well, it is going to set us back a little bit. So I, I don't know, you know, teething pains, new technology. So we wish them the best. It's very cool. All this stuff, I think, you know, right on. Well, all the best to them. And let's move on to the next story. Yeah. So the Bahamas. It's the on again, off again with the Bahamas. You know, we, I think it was a few months ago we talked about, hey, the Bahamas open. And then it's like, you know, a couple weeks later, well, no, just kidding. The Bahamas are closed, but they are once again open. You know, things change rapidly in this coronavirus pandemic world. Uh, but as more people are getting vaccinated and as more people are also getting tested, you know, uh, several countries have, have changed their regulations again. And the Bahamas is no exception. Pilots, pay attention. If you've been fully vaccinated, you can, C-A-N, now fly to the Bahamas without getting a coronavirus test. And you can enjoy all the famous activities there in the, the beautiful islands. And don't forget, we also have a guidebook. AAPA publishes a guidebook That's true. for the Bahamas that will help get you from island to island and from runway to runway and from restaurant to restaurant. Yeah. So, you know, we'd recommend check with the resort in terms of local restrictions because there are apparently some curfews on various islands. And, you know, you want to make sure that you abide by those and that, again, obviously, simple stuff like that there's going to be cars available and all the other stuff you need to do. But in terms of the legality of it, yes, that's exactly right. If you are fully vaccinated, you can go. It's pretty cool. Well, I'm excited. I, I need to log my first flight to the Bahamas. And now now I know I can go. That's good. Hey, let's move on. So, David, this story is a, a little bit of a weird one in that it didn't get a whole lot of play, I think, while it was ongoing. But um, you remember they used to be the flight service stations used to be run by FAA employees and was transitioned to a private contractor, Lockheed Martin. Well, apparently some former staffers of the FAA sued a discrimination case back in uh, 05, 06. And that's just now been settled. It's interesting, Ian. Uh, as you said, we used to be able to walk into those facilities. But when the contracts, you know, changed hands, and this has happened a couple of times right now, a group of FSS employees got together and said, well, wait a minute, we're all, eh, we're not spring chickens anymore. I wonder if that had something to do with our age. You know, might have had a lot to do with technology as well, Ian, but we, we're not sure of that. But 58 of uh, the flight service stations, they had contracted out with Lockheed Martin. And basically that took over the service. And then since then, Lidos has it, of course. And so people did get picked over. They lost their jobs. And it was a class action. Basically, it was a lawsuit to try to, to get that figured out. I hadn't heard much about it. it. Like I said, it's flown underneath the radar a little bit. No pun intended. Yeah, well, it's kind of, I think what's interesting is that, you know, you're right. You have that maybe initial reaction. It's like, well, you know, obviously the government going to a, a private contractor wouldn't necessarily have be age related for the employees, but the plaintiff's attorney said that they were just treated horribly by the government. They weren't 
basically, you know, they were brought in under all these enticements, very specialized training, and then not really given a chance to sort of retrain and, and be rehired throughout the, the rest of the federal workforce. So it's a pretty sizable settlement. $43.8 million, uh, 646 platons. Now, fortunately, a handful of the, uh, the folks have passed away since then. This has been going on for more than 15 years. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so I think I'm sure all are happy to be done with that and to be able to move on. And of course, you know, you mentioned weather earlier. It's like not so many of us call flight service anymore, but they are still there for you when you need them. Yeah, not too long ago, we even talked a little bit more about how a proper briefing would include several facets of these different weather services that we have options for now. So absolutely, but good to have them there still. Yeah. All right, David. This is something we just feel like we have to talk about. Everybody was talking about this recently, and, and we haven't talked about it on the show, but we got to do it. Martha Lunken, a popular and celebrated columnist for Flying Magazine, had the book thrown at her a bit, and, and you talked to her, so tell us what happened. First of all, I want to thank Martha for chatting with me, and also Julie Boatman for hooking us up. Uh, Julie's the editor at Flying Magazine. Martha said she made a mistake. She has a really nice Cessna 180. She said as she's getting older in life, she, she passed this very large bridge numerous times in Ohio, uh, spanning the Little Miami River, and just couldn't resist flying under the 239-foot-tall Jeremiah Morrow Bridge. Uh, unfortunately, you know the main spans are, are 440 feet across. Uh, if you look at the regs, Ian, you know, you're supposed to be nowhere near 500 feet, uh, you know, mm -hmm. 500 feet near anything in a rural area. Yes. And the other part of that equation is defining what a, a congested or uncongested area is sort of at the whims of whoever is throwing the book at whoever. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But this is this is an interesting story because, you know, all the chatter online, of course, you know, everybody is very quick to say, oh, you know, what were you thinking? You knew it was wrong. You deserved it. You know, uh, we should say her all of her certificates were revoked. Yes. Um, so she has to wait a year and then become a student pilot again, which is pretty daunting. I don't know. I, I don't I don't feel quite so. It's like, you know, she she knew there was a risk. Right. She did it. Right. She's been penalized. Seems pretty straightforward. I will say that one interesting aspect of the story is how she was caught. Yeah, well, that is an interesting aspect of the of that story, Ian. And, you know, in this day and age, let's just assume that almost everything we're doing is being recorded in some way. And in her in her case, and it wasn't that they were looking for airplanes or anything. And it was, you know, for car crashes and honestly for people who it's a tall bridge. Put that together with people who, who might have, have other issues. Mm -hmm. And so there were surveillance cameras on the bridge. And a surveillance camera actually got, got her um, flying under the bridge. That was one of the ways the Department of Transportation identified her aircraft. And, and the ball went rolling downhill from there. Now, let's be honest. Um, she has some pretty good aviation chops. Yeah, no and, doubt. And she taught folks how to fly Douglas DC-3s, the Lockheed Model 18 Lodestars, the Fairchild Swearingen Metro Liners. But, you know, that doesn't excuse her or, or for that matter, you or I for, you know, flying uh, closer to a person, place, or thing. Yeah. And the FAA could say, if you had litigation, they could easily say that even if you didn't hit anything, you could be putting that structure in, into some kind of a peril. Yeah. And that is reason enough to have an action instigated against you. So 
for other pilots, let's keep that as a good takeaway. There doesn't have to be people present. It could be a thing that would yeah. be, you know, in the line of fire, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Although people, yeah. people do recreate underneath that bridge, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. You know, I thought it was one thing that she said that I don't agree with is that, you know, you quoted her saying it provided no danger to anyone. She goes on to say, you know, but of course I knew it was illegal and I did it anyway. But it's like, I, I you know. Just because you it, you got away with it doesn't mean it wasn't dangerous. Well, yeah, and, I, and I'm going to add something to that, really, not meaning any offense, but just being honest. A lot of these bridges, Ian, are being inspected on a more regular basis because, in the you know, we do have infrastructure challenges in the country, not just to airports, but to roadways and bridges and other things, too. Yeah. And so who's to say that's, that that a worker would not be repelling underneath it on a rope, yeah. physically yeah. checking the underside of the structure of that bridge? That is not an uncommon thing. Yeah. Or maybe there's a, a UAS operator who's flying a drone and, you know, inspecting the bridge. And so it's like there's a collision hazard. And yeah. And people do fish and, and boat a little bit down in that area. They do hike. There's biking trails. Martha herself is an outdoors uh, person and she hikes and bikes in that area. So I, I think she might have known that, that folks could have been down there, you know, on, on the ground. So. Yeah, that's right. You know, I, my favorite comment online about this story was that somebody said, oh, I've flown under bridges hundreds of times and I've gotten away with it every time and it's fine. And it's like on flight simulator. So to me, that's the takeaway. It's like if you feel like you got to fly under a bridge or do something stupid, it's like just go get into a sim and, you know, do it for fun and then just get on with it. You know, it's like, don't, don't, don't yeah, you don't need to do this in the airport. Right. Keep in mind what the, the, the catch all FAA's FAR 91.13. And that's the careless or reckless operation, you know, phraseology in there. And that's the, the all important gotcha, you know, no matter what it is. So yeah, keep that in mind. And, and our, our panel attorneys at AOPA, this is not an uncommon thing. I mean, a lot of pilots want to fly under bridges. And Ian Arndt, who I spoke with, said, yeah, man, get one of those every so often. People ask about it. But listen, let's let's not do it. Let's be careful. And it makes it worse for the rest of the pilot community. And that's yeah, kind absolutely. of the thing. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, do it in the sim and get your kicks and, you know, yeah, don't do it in the airplane. So anyway, thanks for uh, for doing that story. I think it's a good one. All right. Hey, moving on. Something else actually you've reported on recently is by aerospace. seems like every couple of months we talk about a new model that they're working on. And the latest is the biggest yet, a twin. We teased to this a couple of months before George Bai announced it. And yes, there is a turboprop class electric propulsion eight place aircraft that was recently unveiled. It's a $6 million machine and Ooh. don't forget you know, all electric, but with the kind of performance Ian, that you would expect out of something like a King air, yeah, uh, like a King air 360, which we talked about not too long ago, $7.9 million, 7.9 million. So mm-hmm. you're looking at, yeah, you know, it's in the ballpark price wise and it costs a lot less to maintain electric motors and this airplane will have a full airplane parachute for redundancy and safety. And I know there's a lot of technology that looks like it could go to work in these, you know, typical short haul scenarios. So, you know, broadening that horizon. Yeah, that's great. It's a very cool concept. I guess, you know, I would say, man, finish the E-Flyer 2. Right on. Let's see that thing in real life. 
and then we can start talking about <laughs> the next airplane. And I'm not sure that $6 million price is going to hold because the E-Flyer went up yeah. from 349 The E-Flyer 2 went from 349 to 489000 And, of course, the E-Flyer 4, which we had about a year ago at four hundred forty nine grand, realistically now is about $627,000. But you're right. Let's get the E-Flyer 2 on the market. And I actually talked to a, a flight school owner that ordered a couple of those. I, I was speaking with him yesterday in Manassas, uh, Virginia. Tip of the hat to Bob Hep. He said he was on board early with that E-Flyer 2, and he's pretty excited about it. Uh, and we wish George Buy and Buy Airspace all the best, but a lot of folks really want to see the E-Flyer 2 up and running. Yeah, that's right. Hey, last thing we're going to talk about this week, you know, speaking of sticker shock, Dassault, just today, as we record this, launched a new airplane, the 10X, that could be yours for a cool $75 million. And so, uh, Hangar Talk loyal listeners, Ian and I ran some numbers for you like we do sometimes. And now you can get a 7,500 mile range out of this airplane. This is the this is the biggest airplane that company has ever made. 7,500 nautical miles maximum range. And so let's think about where we can go with that, Ian. Can we go from New York to Moscow? I don't know. My geography, I, you know, my U.S. geography is pretty good. I don't know about my world geography. I'm going to say no, we can't make that. Can we make it? 4,664 miles. We could make it. Wow. Couldn't make it a round uh, trip, though. Yeah. What about, um, let's see, what uh, what's another big one? L.A. to, uh, I don't know, L.A. to Paris. We could probably do that, right? I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I'm guessing we can do that we, affirmatively. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, where else do you want to go? Uh, well, let's go from, I don't know why you would go from Anchorage to Lima, Peru, but do you think you could get there? <laughs> <laughs> in this airplane, uh, is one shot. It's darn far. It's far, um, 6,389 miles. Wow, so Wow. You can get there with now the my reserves. Favorite, <laughs> my favorite is, uh, well, let's see, what else do we do? Do we do New York to Beijing? Is it New York to Beijing? You can do it. I think you did New York to Beijing. Yeah, I think so. I think you can do that. My favorite is your Vancouver to Miami. Oh, but see, why know. not? Why not go from yeah. Vancouver to Miami? That's, That's right. 3,432. So you could basically do a round trip. That's amazing. You could fill it to the fill it to the top in Vancouver. Go down, get your uh, you know, you could have seafood one day in Vancouver, try theirs and then, you know, go down and have it again in Miami and then come home without even getting you, fuel. That is pretty phenomenal. You could compare the Pacific Northwestern crabs to the to the right, one to the spiny lobster right. of, the, but now, of the of the Atlantic. But we did say we did say seventy five million dollars though, right? Seventy five million bucks. And so we we figured that out that that was ten thousand dollars per nautical mile. We were just you know thinking about the cost and 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 where you could go. But now, Ian, how does that compare to something like a Bonanza A36? Is that something that, that you and I are more familiar with, I think? Yeah, yeah. Of course, whew, boy, it's like every day they're getting more expensive, right? But a really nice, you know, used one. Call it late, Previously yeah, used one, late 70s, early 80s Bonanza, you know, 250 bucks a mile, 280 bucks a mile, something like that, maybe. Okay. Yeah. I'm good with that. Yeah. Now we're talking about purchase uh, price versus not yeah, how far right. you can get. It's just pretty pretty funny when you think about it. The other is dollars per knot. You know that's always a good one to do. But yeah, yeah. And I mean, we're teasing the price, but it is it is the market rate right now. I mean, the the global seventy five hundred, which is this is going to compete against, also about seventy five million bucks. 
so we're talking about the ultra wealthy here, heads of state, uh, that sort of thing. I will say a pilot whom I respect and has flown a bunch of different corporate and uh, an airline aircraft said Dassault is the best flying airplane they've ever ever flown. Best flying large airplane they've ever flown. That they flew a is cool. 50. Nice. Loved it. Said it. Just beautiful airplane. Flew really well. So Well, before we leave it, well, let's talk a little bit about technology before we leave it. Because I, I wasn't yeah. aware of this. And I was just reading Tom Horn's story. The Rolls-Royce engines, they're called Pearl engines. And I hadn't, mm-hmm. hadn't heard much about that. But that looked like some interesting technology that was coming on, on board. Rolls-Royce explained that the Pearl 10X was built with uh, high efficiency and low noise as prime objectives. And there's a single piece BLISK, B-L-I-S-K. This is a blade and a disc combined. And so, you know, with 3D printing and a lot of other elements that are lighter and stronger, there's a lot of new technology coming along with the engine. So we'll be able to boost that airplane to, you know, overfly weather and also have that long range. Yeah, I think they also, this is going to be their first carbon fiber wing. So, you know, that's going to be lighter. I think it's a new wing fly by wire, which previous Falcons have been. And then this, this pressurization stat, I just found phenomenal. 41,000 feet cabin's going to feel like it's 3000 feet, 3000 feet. That's not, not, I mean, it's even below a typical airliner, you know, cabin yeah. altitude. That's crazy. So it'll be real comfortable for the passengers. And that's good because every, every seat will have a table. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> There'll be, good. Entertainment centers and widescreen TVs with surround sound and a bedroom area in the back with a full closet, et cetera. So Amazing. that's the way I want to travel one day, Ian. All right. Very cool. You and me both. Maybe uh, we'll, we'll buy it together. We'll go into partnership. And, uh, you know, it's like you fly on the way there and I, I'll sleep in the back and, uh, and then we'll switch coming the other way. Gladly. No worries. <laughs> All right. Hey, let's bring on Dorothy. I want to say before we start that... Dorothy, you know, I promised her that I would go back and edit anything, you know, because I kept putting her on the spot with numbers. And so there are a few things that she did write later and say, hey, wait, I looked into this and I was actually wrong about something I said. So I want to set the record straight before we start. I asked her about the collection. So I know that art museums, for example, they'll have a huge amount of art that just never makes it into the museum. It's in storage somewhere, part of their collection that, that the public never gets to see. So I asked Dorothy about this. How much of the Air and Space Museum's collection is not on display, right? She said, show me back, get this, this blows my mind. Only 5% of the collection is on public display. Whoa. 5%. That's incredible. Amazing. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. So keep that in mind when you're listening. And also she mentions, now she, I don't want to give away spoilers here, but they talk about how the museum's being refurbished. And she says something about the rocket engine. And, and actually what she said about the rocket engine she later told me it was a little bit different than what she mentioned. I'm trying to say this without giving it away. And, and it did not leave the building. Let's leave it at that. Dorothy, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to chat with you today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your role. What does it mean to be a curator as part of the National Air and Space Museum? 
Well, the curators are the people who are responsible for basically the collections and the content of, of what's in our collections and what are what is the content, what's happening in our galleries. So we're the ones who determine what we think would be a suitable artifact to come into the collection and why. And then when it comes to galleries and also, you know, to research, to anything like that, it's, you know, what, what do we feel is important that's happening, you know, throughout the Smithsonian? I mean, all the different museums, you know, in our areas of expertise, what is it that we feel we should be learning more about and that we want then to bring to the public's knowledge as well? So you work, I guess, you know, being a, a GA, the curator of the GA collection, it's like most of what you do is probably Air and Space Museum, but it sounds like you also interact with the other Smithsonians if you feel maybe there's a, an artifact that's really important that wants to be in like the American history collection or something like that. You'll work with them as well to make that happen. That's exactly right. We, you know, and we've collaborated on uh, exhibits. One of the new galleries uh, that's going to be in the new building is a collaborative effort with American history on speed. And we're going to have both aircraft and cars and a variety of different things in that. So we collaborate with our other sister museums all the time. Hmm, Interesting. Okay. And so I mentioned you do GA. What else? Yeah, general aviation is my main focus, and that includes the history of women, minorities in many cases, because both of them, of course, were only allowed in GA you know, in the early years of most of aviation as we know it. I also work with aerial photography, aerial cameras. So things, everything from, we have a camera that Lindbergh used uh, in 1929 to photograph uh, things all the way up to the U2 cameras, you know, the B cameras, that sort of thing, and everything in between. So it's a little bit of all of those together. Hmm. Okay. How many... I mean, I, I don't know, you probably, the number changes constantly, but how many artifacts are in, uh, do you currently have, I don't know, control is a, maybe a weird word, but are you responsible for as part of the collection? Well, there's a good question. I know I'm responsible for at least 50 aircraft. And then beyond that, there's several hundred others, I think, probably, probably a maximum of a 200, something like that, because there's, there's flight clothing and materiel that goes with it. And then when you break down some of these, you know, components, you know, different things of, of that go to different things, cameras and, and related equipment, that sort of thing. So that's probably about what it is. So do you, I'm curious, are there, well, let's call them professional disagreements, because obviously some types of aviation, you know, they, they it crosses those lines, right? So some things that we would consider GA, you guys might consider more, you know, antique, you know, like Lindbergh is a good example. You know, there are people who make a Spirit of St. Louis replicas, and we would consider that general aviation, but maybe you guys, you know, you you clamor for the good stuff. I don't know. How, how do you handle that kind of thing? Well, we do have some overlapping, it's true. And, uh, you know, there are times, we have some collections that are called, you know, the absolute special collections, like the Spirit of St. Louis, some of those that are milestones. So even though technically the Spirit of St. Louis is a general aviation plane. It's also a record-setting plane, and it's a milestone plane. And we have curators that cover all that. So we go back and forth on that sort of thing. And there are, you know, planes that have served in the military, and then they've got civilian uh, aspects to them, and then the the collections can overlap. So, uh, and especially with GA, you know, we've got uh, another curator that handles drones. We've got another curator who handles home-built 
So we've kind of divvied it up so that we have people in different areas of expertise. So a lot of people obviously are familiar with the building downtown, the one that was first built. And then, of course, the Edvar Hazy Center over at uh, Dulles. And so what, you know, other than what's on display publicly, I, I presume there's a whole slew of artifacts that are either in restoration or maybe storage or sort of cycled in and out. So how much of the collection do we do we not get to see on a day-to-day basis? Well, the percentage is better than it used to be. We used to have only about, I think, 10 to 15% when we just had the downtown museum. Since we opened Hazi, we've been able to show so many more. I'm trying to hazard a guess here as to maybe that we're up to 30% maybe now, but I'm not exactly positive. But a lot of what you see at Hazi was in storage, and a lot of it was on loan to other museums. So that was one of the best parts of opening Hazi was having this stream of aircraft either return or pulled out of storage and reassembled and put on display so that people could really enjoy them and not have to say, yeah, it's in storage, it's in storage. So it's it's a museum, it's a visible storage facility, it's all of those. Yeah. Huh. So I'm curious. Well, first of all, how how long have you been curator of the collection? Uh, I've been curator of the collection since about 1990, 89, something like that. Hmm. Okay. So a long time. Mm-hmm. So you've been around these artifacts for a long time. So have you, is there a favorite? I mean, over time, have you sort of gotten attached to one or two things? Oh, sure. I mean, one of my favorite aircrafts is Betty Skelton's Pits which is the first plane that you see when you come into the Udvar-Hazy Center. And part of that, you know, it's an airplane, but a lot of it has to do with Betty herself. And I was so fortunate to be able to know her and uh, to to talk with her. And, and we received, you know, other parts of her collections. We have her archival collection. So, you know, when you can get into an artifact and, and all the behind the scenes, and especially the person behind it, you know, so that's one of them, one of my favorites. Yeah. Cool. It's going to be hard, especially with something, you know, with aviation where it's such, so hardware related. I mean, there those stories, I mean, obviously they're behind every piece. And so it's got to be hard sometimes to be able to show those when, when the focus for a lot of people, they want to come and see airplanes, right? Especially maybe the non-flying public. Yeah. You know, it, it's the tip of the iceberg really to, to see the aircraft or to see the flight suit or to see the camera, whatever it is, all the different things, the rockets, the space shuttle, you know, all of those, it's all about the people behind them. And they represent some moment in history or some person who really had a moment in history. And what we want to do is fill that out then. So that's either in the record that people can look at online when they bring up an artifact and you can read, a, you know, we have essays on all the artifacts that are on, certainly that are on display and we're working to bring up essays and information on all of our artifacts, digitizing everything to make so much more available to the public. So I think that's the exciting point is the rest of the story. Yeah, very cool. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about, usually you guys are restoring artifacts, aircraft, spacecraft, that sort of thing, but now you're working on the buildings. And and I gather as part of that also, some sort of deep cleaning, let's call it, on artifacts that maybe haven't been worked on in a long time. So talk to us if you would just kind of broadly about the project, about what the goals are and, and kind of where you are today. 
Well, yeah, we are obviously, we're rebuilding the building, as you know, and then literally rebuilding it, taking it down to the bones, the steel structure and rebuilding it back up again and modernizing it with, you know, everything that's happened since 1976 structurally and technically. And then, you know, we we created all these new galleries. There are a few like Pioneers of Flight that are renovations more than that, but there are a lot, of course, we all fly and many others are from the ground up new galleries. And so we've had the opportunity to really explore the collections and pull out things that haven't been on display before. And so they do require definitely being pulled out of of storage. It's kind of a triage in our conservation unit. And we have a lot of conservators there who are working on all these different aircraft uh, or objects that curators have designated and said, you know, I'd like to display this. Well, they pull it out, survey the condition, then they start to work on it to prepare it for display, you know, cleaning it, uh, maybe doing a slight bit of repair, but not mostly trying to leave it in its original state as much as possible. So we re- the curators receive a steady stream of information. Those here's the here's this object. Here's how we propose to treat it. Do you agree? And and then we go back and forth, and and then the object is prepared, and it's then boxed, reboxed up again, and set aside you know, to go to the We All Fly Gallery or to go wherever. So we're trying to get, you know, keep it in some sort of reasonable uh, line of assembly line there and and then getting ready to actually install them into the galleries. Hmm. So how much of the total collection downtown had to come physically out of the building and be moved during the the rebuilding process? Nearly 100%. If you recall, there was the large 747 nose in the America by Air, Air Transportation Gallery. That was, that stayed in place and they safely preserved it, boxed it up. So something that large just couldn't come out. But, you know, we took the Saturn V engines out and, and, you know, moved them and, you know, all that kind of thing. So, it's it was nearly a hundred percent, and the West End is at the point now. You know everything came out except for that seven forty seven nose, and now we're slowly getting galleries back from the construction company, and then we are able to start the movement to bring everything back in to the uh, West End, and then we'll do the same thing on the East End. We've already pulled a lot out of the East End, and we'll continue to do that, and then it'll be its turn to be taken down to the structure and rebuilt in the same process again. Wow. So, when, you know, I guess when I say physically moved, I mean, I, maybe a lot of people don't aren't aware, but I mean, they you took them out of the building, presumably on trucks, trailers, that sort of thing, and moved them to, to where exactly? We moved them out to the Hazy Center. Behind where we have uh, the exhibit area at the Hazy Center, we have multiple storage units back there. Very large storage units that really aren't visible to the public. And the DCC is is one of them that I think uh, Julie toured a few years ago. And we basically just compressed everything. The aircraft are disassembled and their nose to tail, that sort of thing, carefully uh, aligned. And then engines are up on racks and, you know, everything else, small artifacts are over on this level. You know, it's all a massive, very uh, intricate storage situation. And then everything is brought in back and forth as needed into conservation or down on the shop floor, depending on, on what needs to be done to the artifact. 
So it's just been a, a huge, amazing assembly line and, and tracking system and all of that. We've, uh, it's been pretty astounding, actually. <laughs> it is amazing. I mean, just, you know, aside from physically getting them out to Dulles, you know, uh, you know, Saturn V engines, I can imagine it's not a normal request when you call, you know, a trucking company to say, we need to move, you know, this massive rocket engine. And one of the fun parts is it was watching things being deinstalled from the galleries themselves and, and watching them come apart. And then especially from the second floor, you know, being lifted over the side of the railing and, and down to the floor and then just pushed out the door and loaded on a truck. And uh, I spent a couple of evenings there watching the Lockheed Vega come down, the Lockheed Sirius. Uh, it, were, it was really, you know, that, that was just fun to watch. And, yes, incredible. So tell us what it's going to be like when it reopens. Well, it's going to be the same exterior, basically, but the interior, all of the existing galleries stay as they are, but they're just all repopulated. They're mostly new galleries. And so, you know, America by Air, you know, will look, you'll still have the DC-3 there, things like that. Milestones will still have the X-15, but we are moving some things in and out of different galleries. So it's going to look significantly different. And it's, it's just going to be marvelous to be able to bring all these new and different things in. And, you know, we've, we've upgraded the idea of, of how to present things and, and what the public interest is. Obviously, now there's so much more technology that will be integrated into it. So many computer interactives and AVs and, uh, you know, and just, you know, the latest designs. It's, it's, uh, and then there will also be more for the public itself. We've got some more public areas that are being designated. And so it's a complete rethinking of, of the whole building. Very cool. Well, we look forward to visiting when the when the work is done. I'm sure you do too at this point, right? Yeah, I'm getting excited. We are already installing some aircraft into the West End and the We All Fly Gallery will start some installations in June. So I'm real excited to, to be able to get downtown. I mean, I haven't been inside the building now in well over a year myself. Mm. So it'll be exciting to be able to go down and, and, and see that happening. And after all these years of planning to see it actually now coming, you know, starting to come to be a reality. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dorothy, thank you so much for the time and, and good luck on the reopening. Thank you very much. We look forward to having you visit us when we're uh, reopened. All right, David. So I just think it's so cool. You know, it's like we've been in the museum, you get to see the collection and now to know what goes on behind the scenes. I just find fascinating. Yeah. And also, Ian, it's a good thing to know that we have a friend in general aviation at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Let's make a point, an appointment to get out there and see it. Yeah. All right. I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk and wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple or Google. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.